Friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles and to turn now to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Uh, if memory serves, it's on page 953 of the little pew Bibles that should be within arm's reach of you. We'd love for you to take that with you if you don't own a copy of the Bible. Uh, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1 today, and just for today, because right now as a church, we're in a series on the hope of heaven. Usually, we focus on a specific book of the Bible, and we go through it piece by piece, week by week, taking each section as it comes. But, but right now, for the first eight Eight weeks of this year, we're in a special series that's taking a theme you'll find all over the Bible, trying to pull up that theme wherever we can find it, hold up that theme to the light so that we can see its beauty and then press that theme down deep into our hearts so that we can live with its power in us. And the theme I'm talking about is the theme of all that God has promised to his people for their future. Our goal in this series on heaven has been not just to see how wonderful the future in heaven will be, as wonderful as it will be, but to see how that hope helps us now while we wait. And this morning, this morning our goal is to apply the hope of heaven to the everyday struggle with anxiety in the meantime. You don't need me to tell you that anxiety is a huge problem in our culture right now. You don't need to tell me, you need me to tell you because you, you've probably seen the stats out there. It seems like they're all over the place online and in news reports and books and podcasts. Everybody's talking about what a lot of people are calling an anxiety epidemic right now. You've probably seen the mind-boggling statistics of how many adults across the Western world especially are reporting symptoms. Maybe you've seen the the gut-wrenching, alarming statistics of how many kids and teens are struggling with anxiety today compared to 20 years ago. But most of all, you probably don't need me to tell you that anxiety is a huge problem because when we're talking about anxiety, we're not talking about stats and trends. We're talking about your life. We're talking about what, what you have probably experienced. Maybe what you carried in here with you this morning. I know plenty of people who struggle massively with anxiety. I don't know one person who enjoys it. I don't know a single person who wouldn't love to obey the command that Colin read for us from Matthew 6 earlier in the service, where Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about your life. More often than not, anxiety feels like something that's happening to you. Not like something you're seeking out for yourself. You feel carried by it. You feel like a victim of it. You, you feel like someone who doesn't need to be told to stop it. If I could stop it, I, I would. It, it's frustrating. And sometimes it feels really hopeless. It's that hopelessness that I want to focus on this morning. I've already seen plenty both in my experience as a pastor, in my life as a human, and in the stuff that I've read from reputable sources to know that anxiety is a lot more complicated than I can understand. That there are factors here that involve brain chemistry. There are factors here that involve traumatic experiences. There are factors here that involve factors we haven't even pinpointed yet. There is a lot going on in our struggle. And I don't want to reduce it down to something simple here this morning. I don't mean to explain what your experience has been, much less explain it away. All I want to do this morning is show you what to do with it. 
Because whatever, whatever may go into the anxiety you experience, however complicated the causes might be, however unique to what you've been through, your struggle may be. What I want to show you is that the hope of heaven is a power tool, an underutilized weapon in the fight for peace that you could be using every single day. I want to show you this morning how to fight anxiety by cultivating a daily and intentional focus on a different future than the possible future that's stressing you out. Let me put this same point a different way. What I want to do today is show you that there is no true peace without hope and there is no true hope without heaven. There's no true peace without hope and no true hope without heaven. If you want any chance at lasting victory in this battle against anxiety, you need to know that what defines your future is an inheritance kept in heaven for you by a God who's keeping you for heaven. You need to know precisely what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. I want to begin now by reading that text. I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in verse 3 and read to verse 5. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Three steps to take together this morning. Understanding anxiety, that's step one. Looking to heaven, that's step two. Applying hope, that's step three. Understanding anxiety, looking to heaven and applying hope. First, we need to understand anxiety. I know I just told you I didn't want to explain it away and I promise I don't. I, there will be more going on in your experience than what I'm about to tell you. But I do think it serves you to know there is a baseline experience in anxiety that is important for understanding what to do with it, how to push back on it with the hope of heaven. This is not all that's going on, but it is going on. I want to help you understand anxiety maybe a little better than you did. Whatever else we might say about it, Whatever else is going on in it, anxiety is an orientation to the future. The experience of anxiety, whatever symptoms come along with it, the tension in the muscles, the heavy breathing, the chest that feels tight, the worried thoughts, the uneasiness that's just general and diffuse, whatever else comes with it, it is always an orientation to the future. Some, some have found it helpful to contrast anxiety to fear. They have a lot of the same symptoms. The symptoms are meant to, to stir up the same kind of responses, but they're actually different from one another. Uh, fear is focused on a present threat, something right in front of you. You go on a hike in Radnor Lake, 
and you see a copperhead one step from you on the path. The response you're meant to have in that moment, it's catch breath, maybe chest tightening, maybe a leap back from the threat. There's a real threat right there. It's happening right now, right in front of you. And fear tends to go away pretty quickly. The little copperhead slithers off into the brush. You give it enough time to get a safe distance away. You move on down the path and your fear is gone with that threat. But anxiety, anxiety is not focused so much on what is happening as on what might happen. That's why anxiety can be so much more difficult to get rid of than fear. It's way more slippery. It's way more diffuse. Its its fingers go further. It's far more difficult to get behind you. I mean, a whole host of definitions I scrape from the web drive this point home. The American Psychological Association. That sounds reputable. I have no idea. That could be some guy in his basement. I mean, I just Googled it, but it sounds really impressive. And they say that that the anxiety is a future-oriented, long-acting response, broadly focused on a diffuse threat. That's a lot of lingo to say. It's, It's about the future. Or the American Psychiatric Association. Anxiety refers to an anticipation of a future concern. It's future-oriented. Or maybe the most relatable and probably the, less, the least reputable. Psychology Today says anxiety is both a mental and physical state of negative expectation. You expect the future to be bad. Anxiety is meant to capture attention and stimulate you to make necessary changes to protect what you care about. And then this definition drives it home. Anxiety can be considered the price we humans pay for having the ability to imagine the future. I'm no expert, but I can see these definitions are on to something, can't you? Again, whatever else may be going on, you open the hood You tinker around a little bit under your experience and I bet you you'll find two basic assumptions about the future that are working on your mind and your heart and that work together to make us miserable. Assumption number one, my future is vulnerable. My future is vulnerable. Several hundred years ago, French philosopher Blaise Pascal gave one of my favorite ever definitions of what it means to be human. Uh, You guys have maybe heard me say this before. He, He talked about humans as thinking reeds, reeds like pieces of grass, but thinking reeds. I mean, on the one hand, a reed is vulnerable and so are we. You know, a reed can get eaten by bugs or animals. It can get burned up by fire. It can get trampled underfoot. It can get scorched by the sun. It can get starved for lack of rain. There's a lot of ways for a reed's life to end badly. And we're, we're vulnerable too. Pascal said just a single drop of water can kill you if it comes with the right contamination. And under the best of possible circumstances, the Bible says that we're all of us just like grass in the field. We grow, we thrive for a moment, we wither, and we fade over time. Our glory as humans and our misery as humans is that we are cursed with the ability to think about it. We are thinking reeds, as vulnerable as the grass, but stuck with minds that can imagine all the ways for us to have bad things happen. It is tough to live in a world with as many dangers as our world has and know you're as vulnerable as you are. 
We live in a world where stock markets crash, no matter how well you plan ahead. We live in a world where cars crash too, at high speeds. In our world, kids can drown in swimming pools when you turn your back. And in our world, as effective as medical care has gotten, at pushing back all sorts of things that used to, it used to, to bring us down, the goalposts just keep moving. You know, early Americans, they were afraid about smallpox. My grandparents' generation, they were worried about, about, about tuberculosis and, and polio. Those problems might be distant memories now, but nearly half of us are going to get cancer at some point. And Lord willing, we'll find a cure, a cure for cancer someday. I'm praying for that. But when we do, another killer will rise up to take its place. And nothing's changing the fact that our lives in this world are as vulnerable as they ever were. And we're still stuck with the ability to know that about ourselves and feel it in advance. One assumption underneath our anxiety is that my future is vulnerable. And when you combine that to a second assumption underneath our anxiety, it is a bitter cocktail indeed. Assumption number two is that my future is up to me. My future is up to me. We tend to feel responsible for all the uncertain futures we imagine for ourselves and never more so than now in the modern world. I mean, what, what, what makes the modern world what it is, as one sociologist put it, is, is this 300-year attempt to relentlessly expand humanity's reach. That's how he put it. For the last 300 years, we've been trying to reach further and further and further into the world to control more and more of the world on our terms. We want to bring as much of what affects us as possible underneath our control and optimize our experience wherever we can. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to ask for a show of hands. I'm not going to. But a huge percentage of you guys out there are now wearing watches right now on your wrist that can measure everything from your heart rate to the number of steps you've taken in a given day or a week. It'll track those metrics. It'll display them for you with all sorts of measurable results. You can use those results to optimize your performance from one day to another and compare how you're doing as you seek to grow over time. You can look at where you were. You can look at where you hope to be. And your watch can help you get there. You can buy a grill these days that lets you set the temperature you want inside the grill, monitor the temperature of your meat in real time, make adjustments on the fly, all from an app on your phone, whether you're sitting on a couch or across town running errands, or again, tempted for a show of hands. How many of you have something on the grill right now for the game tonight and you're watching it on your phone even as we speak? You could if you wanted. That's the world we live in. We can customize everything, or so we think. It is crazy how much of our lives are customizable now. But here's the thing. Nobody gets to customize their future. Nobody gets to do that. You don't know what's going to happen. And the more you expect to control, the more you get used to controlling things, the more bothered you are by what you can't control. The, the allure of being able to have more and more influence over your future, it, it can create this illusion that you live with that, that complete control is possible. And if complete control is possible, if you could determine your future, then you ought to, right? Then you should. Then, it, then it's on you. 
The reality is we have just enough influence. We know just enough to be miserable. Everywhere you turn in our modern and secular age, we are promised freedom to build our lives on our terms. We're told by well-meaning people, well-meaning books, well-meaning podcasts, well-meaning movies, well-meaning voices all over the place to decide what to be and go be it. We're told to remember we've got what it takes. That we're strong enough and brave enough and smart enough to grab life by the horns and go where we want to go. But in our hearts, in our chests, in our lungs, in our shoulders, in the muscles of our neck, we know better. And when we push back on anxiety by looking at all we bring to the table, we are feeding the problem we hope to solve. We are making worse the condition we hope to make better. When people out there behind glistening smiles and all that positive energy look at you and say, the future is up to you. It's just another way of saying you're on your own. I think one of the most powerful ways to think about anxiety is to consider it as a form of loneliness. As, as, as the inevitable lot of a thinking reed who's alone in the world. If this world is everything and if it's on us to make the most of it, anxiety makes all the sense in the world. And I don't know of any way to get past it unless this world is not everything, unless we're not on our own after all, which is to say, I don't know how to get past anxiety without the hope of heaven. And thanks be to God, that's what he's given us. So we've looked at, under, at anxiety, understanding anxiety, that's point one. Now let's get to the hope. Looking at heaven, that's point two. I wanna take you back to 1 Peter 1, verses three to five. This is one of my all-time favorite summaries of the hope of heaven. And I don't know if you know, you probably didn't notice this because I hadn't worked you toward it yet, but in those verses we read, which we're about to read again, you are gonna see two pillars for our hope of heaven that are perfectly matched to the two assumptions underneath our anxiety. Two pillars to the hope of heaven that are perfectly matched to the two major assumptions underneath our anxiety. The truth is on earth we are vulnerable, but our inheritance in heaven isn't. The truth is on earth we're gonna be tempted to feel like our future's up to us, responsible for good outcomes versus bad outcomes. But our lives are guarded by God. Our future is up to him. These are the two beautiful life-shaping points Peter delivers in what he tells us about heaven in these three verses. Let's look back to them again together now. First, your inheritance is kept in heaven. That means your future is not vulnerable. Look at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's just overflowing with praise here. He can't keep it contained. It's like he's shouting from the page. And then he quickly tells us why. 
According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In other words, he's given us new birth into a new family that comes with a new citizenship, a new identity defined by a new hope that Jesus was really dead, but really came to life again. That's what God has given us birth into. And what is this hope that makes us new? What is this hope that depends on him being alive again? Verse four, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse four is Peter's attempt to put words to the hope that entered the world when Jesus walked out of his grave. And the best he can come up with to describe our inheritance is a pile of words that tells us what it's not. Did you notice that? This inheritance, it's imperishable. In this world, everything dies. Everything good is vulnerable. In heaven, nothing dies. It's undefiled, our inheritance. In this world, every good thing comes tainted one way or another, as often as not tainted by me, by my greedy desire for more, by my preoccupation with what other people have that I don't, by my unrealistic expectations about how enjoyable the thing I have ought to be, or simply by knowing that no good thing lasts forever, that as good as it is, even if it were perfect, I could not keep it. That taints it for me. But in heaven, all joy is pure. And this inheritance is unfading. In this world, every good thing ends eventually. It's not just that it's perishable, that it, that it could be destroyed. It's not just that it's vulnerable and that something bad could happen to every good thing we have here. It's that eventually, in the end, it will be lost to time. I mean, we tend to mostly fear what could be lost like that in a moment when we're not looking for it. But, but if you just took your whole life and you imagined it as one long sequence of time-lapse photography and hit fast-forward times a thousand or whatever, you know, it's, it, it would look about the same as losing something in a moment. Everything fades on earth. Tom Brady's won what? Six Super Bowls now? Eight? I don't know. What is he, seven? <laughs> He's won seven. What is he going to be doing tonight? He's going to be eating buffalo chicken dip like I am on the couch watching other people play the game he used to be good at. Because in this world, everything fades. But in heaven, no joy ever fades there. It's like Peter is screaming at us from this page. This world, as it is, is not everything. A new world is coming. And it won't be like this one. I don't know exactly what it will be like. I can't imagine it. It's so different from this one, but it won't be like this one. It'll be imperishable. That's what it'll be like. Undefiled. That's what it'll be like. Unfading. That's what this new world will be like. And it's coming as surely as Jesus walked out of his grave. And that world where your inheritance is kept, it's a world of untouchable security. That's what Peter's saying. It's also like Peter's just basically passing on the message that, that Jesus taught in his Sermon on the Mount. You know, Peter was there when the words Colin read earlier from Matthew 6 were delivered for the first time on the side of that mountain. Peter was there. 
And he heard Jesus say, don't lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy, you know, where things perish and get defiled and start to fade out. Don't do that. Don't put your treasure where a thief could just break in and steal it. On earth, everything's vulnerable, Peter, Jesus had told him. And when your heart's attached to what you can't protect, what no one can protect, you are going to be anxious. But, Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Up there, nothing can get at your treasure. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want peace, friends, you need a treasure that can't be touched. And that's what God is keeping for you in heaven. It is no accident that the Bible ends with Revelation 21's picture of the new heavens and the new earth coming down as a new Jerusalem. And when it describes that new Jerusalem, yeah, there's plenty of interesting details about streets of gold and, 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 and all these jewels, but, but the defining image is a city with walls nothing could breach. There's all this detail about how long they'll be, how thick they'll be, what their foundations will be like. This is a walled city. It is airtight. It is a vault. And your inheritance is there. When he says inheritance, don't think cash that your, that your ancestors passed down to you. Think, think what Israel looked to. Their inheritance in the promised land. A stake in the world that God has promised to build. A world where he is and where therefore nothing else can penetrate no sorrow no sin no death no decay nothing that will make you cry because heaven is a walled city there will be no mourning no crying no more pain anymore and the formal things will pass away that's revelation 21 so how can you have peace when you know you're vulnerable you have to know this world is not everything and that that new world is coming where nothing is vulnerable. You need to know you have an inheritance kept in heaven for you. You need to know your future isn't ultimately vulnerable. And then you need to know that you are kept for heaven. That inheritance is kept for you. But you are also kept for heaven. In other words, your future is not up to you. Your future is not up to you. That's what Peter points to in verse five. It's a second pillar of the hope he's laying out for us. It's not just there's an inheritance kept in heaven for you that can't be touched by loss or change or decay or anything. It's that you are being kept for heaven by God's power and not yours. You who by God's power are being guarded by God's power, you're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You can see what he's doing, right? He's looking at the future again. Peter is future-oriented, just like anxiety. He's looking ahead. And he's thinking of this salvation that God has promised to reveal in the last time that isn't yet visible to us. And who is responsible for that future? How do you know you get to be part of it? And Peter's answer is crystal clear. It's God. From beginning to end, it's God. Back up to the beginning of our passage. It's this golden thread, God's initiative. How do we know all of this is gonna happen? Because it all started with God's great mercy, not with us doing something to gain his attention, something to pay for him to take an interest in us. He is merciful. That's, what, that's the domino that fell first. 
Because it's then God giving us new life and a new family and a new hope of inheritance based on his power, raising Jesus from the dead, verse 3. It is God who keeps the inheritance secured beyond all threat, verse 4, kept in heaven by God. And it is God who guards every one of his children all the way home, verse 5. He's the golden thread that binds the whole package together. So, so when, we, when we feel anxious, often it's, it's because we're starting to feel responsible. We're starting to feel like all these possible outcomes, they, they really come down to whether or not we're on it. But it isn't true if you belong to a father in heaven. He's on it. He's guarding you. He's seeing further than you can. He controls all that you can't control. And he's for you. And here Jesus is just, or excuse me, Peter's just again echoing again what, what he heard from Jesus in Matthew 6. Soon after Jesus said to lay up treasures in heaven, he says, look, focus on your father who loves you too much to leave you here on your own. Don't be anxious, Jesus said, verse 31 of chapter 6, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Or I would add, what is going to happen to me? The Gentiles seek after all these things, Jesus says, and your heavenly father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What Jesus is saying here is just radical. It's radical in his time as the command not to be anxious feels in our time. When he talks about the Gentiles seeking after all these things, he's speaking about the, the, the pagans, which were the dominant religion of that time so Israel was this little tiny minority surrounded in a huge vast sea of paganism Gentiles a shorthand for pagans how did they see the world well they believed there were gods but all their gods were part of this world and all of their gods really just aimed their power at helping anyone who paid them off to get more out of this world than they could get on their own it was all about this world And ultimately, even though there were gods involved, they're not for you unless you pay for them. So it's really still up to you to make as much from this world as you can possibly make. That's who he's talking about when he says the Gentiles, they're stressed about what they're going to wear or what they're going to eat or what they're going to drink or how their lives are going to come out. Of course, they're anxious about their lives. They think the future's up to them. And if they don't grab life by the horns, nobody else is going to do it for them. That's what Jesus is saying. But he's saying to his followers, you don't have to live like Gentiles. You don't have to live like your pagans. Jesus anchors their future in the fatherly care of a God who loves them. He says, look at look how he feeds the birds. Aren't you more valuable than them to him? Look at the clothes he puts on the lilies before they go into the, the trash heap. Don't you think your body cares or matters more to him than, than those? You can trust him. You matter to him. Your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask and without you telling him. And he wants good for you without you paying him off because he's your father. So seek his kingdom and let all these things be added to you. You seek the kingdom. You seek the future he's promised. You put your heart there and let him take care of the rest. Maybe you're here this morning considering Christianity for the first time. I, I know I've been speaking mostly to Christians up to now because I'm talking about the hope of heaven, which is, which is something a Christian has held onto, has grabbed onto in place of any other source of hope. I wanna just quickly speak to you directly. 
and tell you, first of all, we are so, so glad you're here. It is a huge gift to us that you've come this morning. And that even though so far I've mainly been talking to people who are already Christians, I've also been giving you a lot of insight into what it is Christians look for in Jesus. One of the things I'd want to ask you at this point is, where do you think your life is going? And of course, I mean like 20 years from now or 30 years from now, but let's say you live a long and healthy life. I'm I'm really wondering, where's your life going beyond your death? And in the meantime, I wonder, who do you think is looking out for you beyond what you can see for yourself? At the heart of our faith as Christians is that we believe God, the God who made us, the God who rules over everything, has given us a new hope for our future. And that the key to the hope he's given us for our future is a new relationship with the God who holds that future. That he has given us a relationship to him as a father to a daughter or a father to a son. And the best reason we've got for believing it's all true is the reason Peter points to here in verse three. Jesus Christ, who really died, really did come back to life again. And the reason you can believe this thing is true, not just in reality, but for you, has everything to do with the mercy Peter talks about in verse three. The only way anybody gets in on the hope that we are clinging to is that God offers it to them despite the fact that they've got nothing to pay for it and they've got no reason to deserve it. That means you can get in on it too if you want. And we'd love to talk to you about how that could be. Now, what I want to do before we close with the last few minutes that I've got is talk about the impact that heaven as our future has on our anxiety in the present. Third step to take together this morning is applying hope. Applying hope. Because here's the thing, guys. Let's just shoot straight with you and not sugarcoat it. For now and for as long as we live in this world, we are vulnerable in a way. We are facing all sorts of short-term possibilities we can't possibly control. That's the way in which I mean it. There are a lot of things that from our perspective could go one way and not another. And a lot of outcomes we would never want to go through that we might end up going through. And there's nothing we can do to change that. And because that's how we're going to have to live for as long as we live in this world as it is, we're going to struggle with anxiety for as long as we live in this world as it is. In one form or another, that just is what it is. For now, we do have to live as a thinking reed in the world. But we do not have to live like pagans. We do have to live like thinking reeds. We do not have to live like pagans. When you feel anxious, you're expecting something negative for your future. That might not be how it comes on you. It might hit you out of nowhere. But somewhere buried in there is a negative expectation about your future. That's what anxiety is. And the hope of heaven we've been meditating on this morning, it's a different version of your future. A different perspective on what you have to look forward to. An inheritance that that you can set your heart on that nothing can possibly touch. Guarded by a father who guards you 
in the meantime. And I want to see, I just want to point you in the direction of using those two pillars of your hope for the future as pillars to lean on when you feel anxious. In fact, I think one of the most practical things you can do when you're feeling anxious is see if you can't figure out whether your anxiety is mostly in that moment coming from the pillar of confidence in your untouchable inheritance wavering on you or the pillar of confidence in God who guards you wavering on you. Is your anxiety attached to to the what of your future? What may or may not happen to you? Whether or not you get to your inheritance? Or to the who of your future? Is it on me? Am I in charge? Let me give you two questions to help you do this work so you can know where to apply the hope of heaven in your life. Here's one. When you're feeling anxious, I think it's worth, you have no reason to hide from asking this question. Am I more attached to what is possible than to what God has promised me? Am I more attached to what is possible than to what God has promised? I think sometimes feelings of anxiety can be a sign we're too attached to something we can lose and not as attached to what we can't. Sometimes, and hear me emphasize sometimes, sometimes anxiety can be a sign that we have anchored our lives to a future that God hasn't promised us. For for as long as we live here in this world as it is, we are gonna have seemingly endless short-term possibilities out there in front of us. And some of those things are gonna be perfectly worthwhile to go after and to want. It's possible I know many of you are, tr- are in the training phase of your life right now. You're working ahead, doing everything you can to get ready for your career. And it is possible that you will get a job you're hoping for. It's also possible that you'll get an earn, earn a good living through that job. It is possible, if you own a home right now, that your house will never burn to the ground. It's possible that someday you'll get married or have children. It's it's possible that your kids may grow up healthy and well-behaved and ready to head off to college that they can afford. It's possible that you'll save up enough money to retire on. It's possible that your adult kids will always want you to be in their life. It's possible that you won't get cancer or won't get Alzheimer's or won't suffer any kind of debilitating injury for as long as you live. And as we live in this world, we do have to consider all kinds of what might be these, these short-term possibilities that could go one way or another that we hope will go one way and hope will not go the other. And that's not wrong. Proverbs is full of advice and wisdom for how to seek good outcomes and how to avoid bad outcomes. But, but here's the thing, the Bible is also really clear. The Bible is also so clear that that we face a danger when we look at all those short-term possibilities, when we are really locked in on them. We are always gonna face a danger. We We will be relentlessly tempted to give our hearts to a version of a best case future we've imagined and not the future God has promised us. We will always be tempted 
to put our hearts to lay up for ourselves treasures here where anything can get at them. And anxiety can be a sign to protect us. Is my heart attached to what I know I can't provide for myself or protect for myself? Have I set my heart on something vulnerable to moths or rust or thieves? Do I need to open my hands, even of a good gift God has given me, and set my mind on heaven, where an inheritance is imperishable and undefiled and unfading? And whatever you may find when you ask that question, whatever answer you may come to, the God-given, spirit-backed, resurrection-tested medicine that you're always going to need, no matter what you find, is going to stay the same. Remember, you were born again to a living hope. You've got an inheritance kept in heaven for you. It's not perishable. It's not defilable. It is not fading. It's yours because of Jesus. So lay up for yourselves treasures there where moth and rust cannot destroy. Ask, am I too attached to something I can lose? Not attached enough to what God has promised me? Here's another question to ask. Do you believe your future matters more to you than it does to God? Let me ask you that question again. Do you believe your future matters more to you than it does to God? Sometimes when we feel anxiety, what we're feeling is the pressure of responsibility. talked about that earlier. We're feeling like it's on me to provide or protect what I love. We're feeling like the difference between an outcome I do want and an outcome I don't want is on my shoulders. And we know in our bones that's too much weight to carry because we don't know what's best, not always. And we can't ever control the future, not ever. And when we act like that's not true, we're the ones who suffer more and more and more. Sometimes we can lose sight of God's fatherly care, in other words, and act like the future's up to us. Is that happening for you? Friends, I think it is so easy to slip into that trap because we're so used to believing that nobody cares as much about our future as we do. And for the most part, that's true. It's no easy thing to trust somebody else when your life is the life that's on the line. I love the way John Updike captured this tension in a short story called Trust Me. Story where a middle aged man is thinking back on his life and, and what it means to ask somebody else for trust and what it costs them to give it to you. At one point, he thinks back to a time when his young daughter had braces in her mouth and he was, he was needing to tighten them up and he used a pair of needle nose pliers to adjust them. Updike writes, she'd come to him in pain, a wire gouging the inside of her cheek. But then, with his clumsy fingers in her mouth, her eyes widened with a fear of worse pain. And he gaily accused her, you don't trust me. The gaiety of his voice revealed a crucial space, a gap between their situations. It would be his blunder, but her pain. Another's pain is not our own. You see what he's getting at? He's getting at what he calls in this story, the space, the space of indifference. The inevitable gap between somebody who asks to be trusted and the one who's got to trust them. 
Surely you've felt that before, haven't you? Surely there have been times, whether it was your doctor or an advisor or a boss or maybe a client, where you felt like your life, even your future, hinged on what to somebody else was just a 9 a.m. appointment. And that gap, that space of indifference, it is a huge barrier to trust. That's why when we fight our fight against anxiety, we have to cling with all our strength to the promise that God guards us for heaven as the father who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. The God who promised our untouchable inheritance is a God who put his own skin in the game. The God who guards us is a God to whom our future matters as much as it matters to us. He has proven that. Friends, there is inexhaustible anxiety-fighting power in Romans chapter 8. Read that chapter this afternoon if this sermon is resonating with you. When, when God didn't spare his own son, when Jesus became human, that was God shattering the illusion that there's any space of indifference between us. When he became like us in every respect, he completely blew up the gap between our situations. And he didn't spare his own son so that he could give us everything he's promised to give us. He wouldn't pay the cost that he paid if he didn't in, intend to follow through. And when, when Paul says that God didn't spare his own son, he's reminding us that Jesus went to the cross for us. Whatever terrible outcome you are imagining in your future is not the worst thing that could happen to you. The worst thing that could happen to you would be to stand before God and face his wrath to be separated from him, the source of all light and all love and all life. And the worst thing that could happen to you already happened to Jesus, so it would never happen to you. And because it happened to Jesus, now nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing. Things could get bad. There are a whole host of short-term possibilities that could come for you between now and glory. Paul lists them all in Romans chapter 8. Your short-term possibilities include, and I quote, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. Feel free to keep going. Add in all of your other what might these, whatever kept you up at night last night. But everything you encounter from here to glory Every bit of it, whatever it might be, comes to you, as John Newton put it, from the same hand that was nailed to the cross for you. And none of those things will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That means there is no future outcome, no matter how fearsome, in which God will not be with you. He's with you now. He'll be with you forever, and your future is up to him. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you as vulnerable thinking reeds who have no hope but that you are for us. 
You alone are God. And so we thank you that you did not spare your own son, that you have promised to bring us where he already is and to be with us in a world free of all dying, all crying, all pain. Hold us for that day, we pray, and help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.